So for those of you that were here last week, you know we had a panel discussion up here on the stage and we we're talking about how Christians can respond to and think about the topic of abortion. And it's obviously a very sensitive topic and there's a lot of different things to take into account when it comes to it. And I, I walked away feeling like the people on stage like, did such a good job of showing compassion for a difficult topic did such a good job trying to recognize that it's complex <laughs> and trying to apply faith to something. But I also recognize because we were looking at the complexity of the issue, it, it makes it hard to make a blanket statement because you see different parts of different pieces and it makes it hard to say there's a one-size-all-fits one size fits all solution to things that have so many complexities. And so because of that, I felt like our conversation was sort of like, well, here are the issues and how we can think about them. But it didn't necessarily drive forward to conclusion because like, what's the conclusion that you can draw about huge social issues? There's actually a million conclusions and outworkings of them. And I felt like, okay, well, we're, we're starting a conversation here. It was a good start to a conversation. Um, but we can't leave a conversation there. And this, this sermon is not about abortion as a topic. It's just a great example of what I want to talk about. Um, we need to find ways as Christians in the face of complexity to still get to places of confidence. Because if we just say that things are very big and very complex, which they are and is true, it sometimes is like demotivating to know, well, then what to do with it. So that becomes a good start to a conversation, but we have to find ways to get to, well, then what for me and what for you, Lord, and what do we do about this? How do we have confidence when things are confusing? How, do you, how can you be bold about something like, well, I see there's all these different elements to it. I just felt like as a pastor, I walked away saying, well, in that area, in many others, you can see how widely this topic applies to so many places in life. It is possible to be confident as a Christian, even if we don't have all the answers. I'm going to go Southern Baptist here. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> It is possible to be confident as a Christian without having all the answers. It is possible to be confident even if we don't know how things will turn out. It is possible to be confident even if we're not sure we're right. Confidence is a deeper-seated thing. And so what I want to do is I want to look at a scripture and at a man, just like I said from the piano earlier, we're going to be taking this fall and looking at the man, Joshua, how God used him in his life. And this has been something that's been tugging at me now for several months. And so I keep coming back to it and feeling like more look into his life and who he was, how God told him to have courage for the things in life he needed it. He's going to resonate with us. I think he's more relevant to us than we even know. And I want to dig into that together. But even the people of God there are, are going into an unknown land and we have our own little shift going from one place place to another? How will we get there well? How will we know that God is taking us where we're going? That, that, that journeying concept of us as the people of God, we're actually experiencing a little bit of a journey right now. I think that will speak to us. How God won the battles like Jericho for the Israelites. We need that in our lives instead of figuring or thinking that we have to solve all our problems and, and win every battle ourselves. There's so many elements to it that are going to be good. But this first one, the ability to have confidence in God when you don't know outcomes and when things are complex and when there are legitimate reasons for fear. Doesn't that sound like Joshua? He was confident in the Lord even though in the land there were giants, literal giants. David and Goliath, Goliath is a descendant of those people that were in that land, giants, towering figures. And the Israelites kind of coming in like, 
What are we going to do? They're, they're huge people in huge cities. How could they have confidence when the task was too big? How could they have confidence when they weren't sure and, and didn't know how it was going to work out? But they did. And in every area where they did have confidence, God then responded to that confidence, to their obedience, with the results. So I'm going to say one thing here before I define what this principle is that I'm, I'm driving at here. I think as Americans, we're taught that success is in your results. How did it turn out? How'd you do? What grades did you get? Isn't that ingrained in us? That's your results. So if you want to tell me if you succeeded at your class or not, show me your grades. As Christians, we need to define success as obedience. Hear me and think about that for a second. God doesn't guarantee us results. But if we're obedient step by step, He's in charge of the results. And there's no one I'd rather have be in charge of the results than God. So someone might look at us and say, where's the results? Prove it to me. And we need to start from the beginning and say, these are the steps that God is calling me to take. I'm leaving the end results up to Him. Christians' life cannot and should not be measured by results. Because if so, think about all the people in Scripture that would have been considered failures. All the Jews that never made it into the promised land. Evidently, they all just failed, right? Because they didn't get the results. But what about the ones that God said were honoring to him, the remnant, that whole time that were his people? What about all the steps of obedience that God blessed? <coughs> The prophets. None of the prophets in the Old Testament could, be, could have been considered successes because Jesus didn't come in their lifetime. They said, Jesus is coming, and then they died. Never saw it. No results. They died not knowing, but they were obedient. And because they were obedient, their words got written down. So another whole generation could look back on those words and be like, ah, the success is a much bigger scale and wasn't determined by Isaiah or Jeremiah or Micah. When we start defining success by the steps of obedience that we take, you could say that a successful life is taking a million consecutive obedient steps. Could we say that we lived a life well lived if we lived a life just a million consecutive obedient steps? Because what if everyone lived a life of a million consecutive obedient steps? That would be God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That would be heaven on earth. But we're not in control of the outcome any more than the prophets could make Jesus show up to justify their prophecies before they died. They just were obedient. I have this vision and here it is, Israel. And then they died. Because the results are in God's hands. We had, a, had an uncle who passed away unexpectedly. And everybody keeps talking about, and I keep feeling this way too, about it's too bad he didn't get to like enjoy the fruits of his labor for longer, have a longer retirement, longer relaxation. We're just not guaranteed any of that. So if we have a life of a million consecutive obedient steps, we will end up in places that God can bless and things will happen, but we're not waiting to say, was my life a success or a failure? You know today if today is a success or a failure. We will know tomorrow if tomorrow is a success by how we live it out. And we trust that as we're obedient, God blesses. So what's this, this grasshopper principle that I'm, I'm pointing at? It's about giants and grasshoppers, and we're going to read this in just a moment. But the fear that the Israelites felt when they saw things that were too big for them, it crippled some of them. They were told to go in and spy out the land. 
And instead, all the factors that could go wrong stood out to them in such a way that they weren't able to take any steps. They're like, we have to go the other way. We want to go back to Egypt. They're trying to stone Joshua and Moses. They're just like, So you get to this place where you see there's so many things that could go wrong that we don't do anything. Winning isn't finishing. God will take care of what the finishing looks like. Winning is walking. It's step-by-step following God. And the ones like Joshua and Caleb are willing to take every step in a direction they felt God calling them to. They saw the results that God would bring about, even though they weren't results that they could. And that's the difference between a grasshopper and a giant. Giants fight big battles and have like final conclusions, you know? Grasshoppers take millions of little steps in the same direction. And God told them, I'm not going to make you as strong as these people that you're going to fight. I'm not even going to give you the plan for how I'm going to take over this whole land. I'm not even going to tell you how it's going to work out. Do you know in the end result, Israel never fully even took over all the territory that God had promised them. Even in Solomon's kingdom, which was the largest of all, and there's still a few territories if you go back to the beginning. So was that a failure then? Was the whole reign of the nation of Israel a failure? No. Was David and all those victories a failure? Was Solomon a failure? No. They found success every moment that they were obedient. And if they had continued in that obedience, God would have expanded it to the full measure of his promise. They never saw the full extent of it. Why? Disobedience. So if I could say anything to us, it's just that every decision, every little moment, every day matters because if we're willing to live lives of a million consecutive obedient steps, we'll see amazing results. But we want to come in like the giant. I want to know who I got to fight and how I'm going to win and want it done today. And I want to get some credit for it when it's done. It's like, no. Be a grasshopper. Hop, 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 hop. And all of God's people hopping in the same direction and you will eventually overcome the giants. It's God's way of victory. In the New Testament, same thing, right? The church, you plant one seed, a smallest seed, a mustard seed, and it grows and it takes over everything. You want to have a marriage that's taken over by love and patience and mutual respect? It's by doing a million, taking a million consecutive obedient loving steps. And the results will speak for themselves. But you can't just fix a marriage any more than you can just fix the problem of abortion, any more than we just fix addictions or temptation or all the things in our life that are too big to fix. It's not about fix. God is the fixer. It's about take a step. Winning is walking step by step. And we're going to see in so many ways as we dig deeply into Joshua that um, These little steps matter. And sometimes they don't even make sense. Sometimes people will judge us. You're doing that? Like, I know it doesn't make sense, but I feel called. This is the step I'm supposed to take. And if God's leading us, we see where it ends up at the end. So today is a little bit of a preview of where we're going, specifically focusing on this. And we start in the book of Numbers. So Joshua shows up in the books of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, And then he shows up, obviously, in the book of Joshua, an entire book dedicated to recording all the things that he and God did when he was a leader. But he started off as Moses' assistant. He was a little right-hand man, little Joshua. Just like a little Josh Clancy, all right? Little Josh. It's Moses' right-hand man, running around, fighting battles, causing trouble, right? Yeah, Joshua. Do you know that Joshua is the Hebrew, and it's it's English translation, but the Hebrew name has the same name as Jesus, as Yeshua? Yeshua. So this Old Testament 
man, Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua, um, was called to lead people out of their wilderness wanderings into the promised land. Does that sound like another Jesus we know? <laughs> He's called to set his people free from sin and from death and to lead us into heaven, into the promised land. So there are parallels. You'll see that in Joshua. But because he was around and serving Moses before he became a leader and has an entire book dedicated to him, um, we're going to start in one of those spots. So he's grown up a little bit, and Moses appoints him a task. Numbers chapter 13. We're going to read chapter 13 and a bit of 14. And um, I hope that you'll see the steps of obedience that, that we could really learn a lot from. I invite us to think about redefining that success to just these little obedient steps. Numbers 13. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. Okay, yeah, we're going to read names for you because naming actually is really important. You're going to see why at the very last name. And these were their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. Hoshea, the son of Nun. Remember that one. He's from Ephraim. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vafsi, from the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Maki. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses renamed him. I think that's fascinating. God is always renaming people who he has specific tasks for. This is an important part of us realizing who we are as Christians, too. We get renamed. Right? You and I were talking outside a little bit about like, life and where we come from, where God takes us. And when there's a clear like, before and after, it helps us to remember and be reminded constantly, like, that's not me anymore. This is the new me. And every Christian should have some moment like that. Like, it's the new me. And in a way, God does that, does a favor by renaming people. And their new name reminds them who they are. So the name, Yeshua, Savior, Messiah, Joshua, God saves, that was given to him by Moses. Because God showed Moses who this man was going to grow up to be and what his role would be. The same thing, Jesus was the name given to him. Because God knew who this boy would grow up to be. And so he told his mother, this is the name, his father, this is the name he should have. So it's more than a name. Joshua is more than a name. It's a title. It's a definition. It's a calling. So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not. But be of good courage. And bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season for the first, was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went out and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, to Lebo Hamath, 
They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. These are the huge people that I was mentioning. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. And that place was called the valley of Eshel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. So at the end of 40 days... They returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, let's go up at once and occupy it. Like, this is what God calls you. Let's just go fight right now. Let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land though, through which we have gone to spy it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, We wish we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land just to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes, and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land, and he will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They're bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. They will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them. You will go before them, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people off as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them and that he has killed them in the wilderness." 
Now please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test those ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went." and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from, census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity for forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, he returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. And of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, remained alive. They don't always learn their lesson, and we don't always learn our lesson, but we're going to stop there before we head into the next misstep that Israel makes, and we'll just focus on this one. You ever wonder why God sent them into the land to spy it out at all? If he was just going to make everything happen, why scare them like that? He knew what they would find. Why not just like go up to this first city and then when it falls, you'll build your confidence. Like, hey, there's Jericho, now there's no Jericho. All right, let's go do it. Instead, he sends them out one by one, two by two, all into this land just to see how big and scary it is. Ever think about that? It's like he's trying to scare them. And it worked. He's testing their faith because he said, I want you to go spy out the land that I I'm about to give you. Not the land that you're capable of taking. Not the land that you're going to know how to take. But man, you are going to appreciate what I'm about to do. I want you to see the full scope of how amazing this is going to be. So go ahead. Go take a look at that. 
See that impossibility? And you see that impossibility? You see that one? See the size of that guy? This is the land I'm about to give you. So they're spying out was to be able to recognize the power of God, not for them to have it all figured out. And it was to test their faith. Do we believe that even if there's giants and we seem like grasshoppers, even if our problems are huge and we don't know the solutions to them, do we trust that God can lead us all the way through when we're not in control of the results and when it seems like there's no way it could possibly happen? We see he does this again and again. God constantly sets Israel up against impossible odds so that he can show that he's the one doing the saving. So he sent them in to show them it couldn't be done. And they came back, and the ones that were trusting in their own strength said it can't be done, and they were right. It couldn't be done without God. But the couple that said, yeah, but God can do anything. Let's go for it. Those are the ones he kept because he said, I'm going to bring you in. And all your kids that you're worried about protecting, you want to go the safe route and disobey me because you want to save your kids? I'm going to give it to them. They're the only ones that are going to be saved. While you're trying to protect them as a cover-up for being afraid of the immensity of the problem, I'm actually going to let you fall because you're trying to save yourselves. And the ones you're trying to protect, I'm going to elevate and protect them and make them the ones that inherit because they can't do it for themselves. And that's what God's looking for. He's looking for a million consecutive obedient steps towards him over the course of our life, a life well lived. He's not looking for us to have the answers. And so we face things that are huge and complex. The question is, okay, we've spied out the land. We see the challenges. Now we step back, we talk to each other, and we say, what's the first step? We pray, we get on our knees and say, God, what's the first step? And then he just says, take this step. We're like, that doesn't make any sense. He's like, don't worry. This isn't a logic thing. This is an obedience thing. This is a faith thing. So we see God saying at the very beginning, uh, go and spy out the land um, that I am about to give you. We see the people who believed. Uh, we see the people who didn't. Um, we see the response of Israel either in fear or in faith. And um, we see the judgment of God. We see that God is someone who keeps his promises, whether it's to stop us or to start us, whether it's to bless us or to curse us. He's there trying to accomplish his purpose. So if this generation didn't do it, God's not going to fail. He's just going to raise up another generation who would. And this is how we look at God's plans. They involve us and they are for us, but they are bigger than us. And that's why God will not fail. It's just us who might not be able to see it through to conclusion. That's, that's the story of God's people, and that's why we need Christ, because we're not really able to fully see it through to conclusion. We need Christ to help us. We need a Joshua to say, don't be afraid. Let's walk forward. Let's cross that river. Let's face these giants. Um, for some who have, are in recovery and struggling with the temptations to go back to their old way of life, might feel like, okay, being free from addiction that feels like a giant. And if you tell someone, do that today, they would love to answer like, sure, show me how. I want that done today. I'd love to be done with that today. But that's not how God calls us to. He says, on this particular day, did you get up and put your confidence in me? On this particular day, did you wake up and say, God, 
Give me the strength for today. Did you wake up on this day and turn your life over to Him? Steps, not giants. We don't fight as giants. God doesn't want giants. He didn't call the giants. He wants the smallest to do the biggest things so that He gets all the glory for it. When we walk into topics and, and things, whether it's the economy or whether it's social topics, and we say, well, how can we change and eliminate racism? That's a giant. It's an awful, ugly, nasty giant. But that's, we'd love for that to happen today. I'd pray for that to happen today. Topple that giant. And God says, what are the steps of obedience you can take that will be a million consecutive obedience steps that if every one of God's people were taking a million consecutive obedience steps, the result of that would be that this sin wouldn't exist anymore, at least not within God's people. It's a different way to think about the giants. It's a different way to think about how we get from A to B. And in my mind, it is the most simple, like Dominic talked about with Surf Home, and confident thing we can ever do is saying, today, what will I do? I thought of a practical sort of discipline that we could, we could think about together when it comes to this. Because how will you know what steps you've taken? And I was thinking about my son Griffin. He wears a Fitbit every day. At the end of the day, he measures the success of his day by how many steps he got. And his record is like in the 30,000s somewhere. He's a kid. Yeah. And now that was a day with like floor hockey and friends over and, you know, flag football and a lot of fun. But um, do we measure our steps or do we get depressed by our lack of results? I'm not there yet. I still struggle with anger. I'm going to look back on your day. Were there any steps you took that were steps of love? Can you count your steps? As Christians, can we count our steps? Can we lay down at the end of the day? I encourage you to put a little notebook next to your bed. Count your steps. It's not necessarily counting your blessings, although it's kind of like that. It's like a spiritual Fitbit. Count them. Because those steps, they may seem small. The way you responded to a coworker, the way that you taught a child, the hug that you gave when someone was crying, like those are the steps that make up a godly life. And they don't seem big in the moment. But if you put a million of those suckers together consecutively, and if everybody did, that's heaven on earth. That's everyone everywhere loving each other and caring for each other. I encourage you to think about counting your steps. And if you want to be even a little wiser than that, when you wake up in the morning, plan some steps. I wake up in the morning and I look at whatever meetings I know I'm going to have that day. And I think, all right, God, what, what will you bring about in that conversation? I hope that you bless that one. And so I go into it knowing there's an agenda. It could be a contractor. It could be discipleship. It could be anything. But like, there's a conversation that's going to get to happen that I know about. All right, well, can something cool happen there? Can I learn something? Can I teach something? Can we experience you in some way? If you plan your steps, God will determine... What is it? We plan our course. God determines our steps, right? Set some goals where we want to go in the day and then look back at the end of the day and say, God, this is where we got. All along this journey that we're going to walk through with Joshua and the nation of Israel, people mocked them every step of the way. 
Oh, you think your God can do that? Oh, you think you're going to do that? You think you can survive that? And they couldn't point to the results until they got there. But they kept taking the right steps every single day. And they got there. I challenge us to be people that will live a life that honors God by doing the smallest things, right? And in the moment, you might not realize that there was actually the biggest things. At my uncle's memorial service, we're like looking back over his life and the things that you think of, the things that stand out to you are like someone's you know, hugs or smiles, you know, the, the skill they had, the, the moments that you're with them. But on that day, it was just, hey, how are you? It was just a hug. But then afterwards, you realize that that mattered. And that's how it is with how we treat each other. That's how it is with how we live with God. If we do these things along the way that seem small at the time, we look back, realize those were the things that actually matter. And if we're willing to apply this grasshopper principle and not be so discouraged that we're not where we want to be, but if we say, this day, I'm trying to take the steps that God's calling me, we're going to just blink and wake up one day in glory and look back and say, wow, look what God did with all those simple little steps. I'm applying this to myself and to us as a church when it comes to the center. Like, what if I never get to the center? Will my life have mattered leading up to that? What if it's like a 50-year a project to get in there? Good Shepherd is going to regret that promise they made to us if we're here 50 years from now. <clears throat> but like, okay. Just okay. That's okay. We will not judge God's goodness by how the results look. He will not judge our faithfulness by do we get to the finish line quicker. Because guess what? When you're trying to race to the end, that's when you cut corners. That's when you push someone out of the way because you're trying to get there. That's when you don't say something you should and you say something you shouldn't because you're so fixated on getting where you're supposed to get that you don't do it the right way. And then that doesn't honor God. Those people that could have gotten in the promised land didn't get there. They got to the finish line. He's like, you didn't run the race the right way. You took a million disobedient, awful steps in the wrong direction. You don't get to cross the finish line. Reboot. Start again. 40 years. Right? You can't push people out of our way to get to results when it's not the results that matter. And we're going to be so devastated if we never get to see the results that we want if we're living for them. So I think it's a very American thing. We've been trained to look for results. But I'm inviting you to say, when someone asks you, you know, what do you do? How are you doing? How's life going? Any of those things. To not go to like, well, what proof do I have that I can show? The kids are in college, that's a result sort of thing. We got them there, right? Um, job's going well, a result sort of thing. Just got a new addition on the house. We, point to the, we like to talk about the things that we've finished. What if you answer that question by like, well, I'm working today on gratitude. Taking three steps of gratitude today. It's been an awesome day. We don't even measure ourselves that way, but what if we could? What if we lay down at, at night and next to our bed, we can write down the three steps of gratitude. Trust me, the people around us will appreciate those three steps of gratitude. Father God will look at us and be like, oh, you loved your neighbor well with those three steps of gratitude. And if you don't wake up tomorrow, it's fine. 
It's not about the results. Those are in God's hands. So in a way, there's a sense of freedom. In a way, this may be frustrating for our results-oriented people. Our number three achievers, Ian, my wife, like others, Enneagram, if you ever, any of you have done that, like they're, they're motivated by, well, what do I have to do to like succeed in this thing or this task? Uh, redefine it so that you can survive this mental shift because it's not about whether you get to where you're going. It's about who am I in the moment. And if you can define it that way, then you can be satisfied at night when you go to sleep versus feeling like I got to get up early tomorrow because I got to get to those results, which may or may not ever happen. So we're grasshoppers. And there's one encouraging scripture I want to read for you. It's a short one. You don't need to turn there. But um, it's in Isaiah. And this is like the, the kicker um, to, to the whole thing. It's that we look at other people and we think they're the giants and the problems. And God looks at everybody and he's like, no, you're all grasshoppers. <laughs> it's a matter of perspective. At the memorial service, someone was saying about how they always looked up to Uncle Van because you know, they were so, his younger brother he was like so six years older than him and played football and was just like a giant. And he was just this little squirt running around in the house. Um, so Van to Randy was a giant. But Van to God is a grasshopper. And if we recognize the smallness of us all and put God in his proper place, then actually it's not as hard to take the million consecutive obedient steps. And so here in Isaiah, that's what the prophet says. It just reminds us. Um, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is him who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It is him who, bring princes, who brings princes to nothing. And he makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. That's where we start. God is God. And all these things that we think are insurmountable, impossible, all the people that we think have it great and all together, all the people that we feel small next to, they're small compared to God. And if He's with us, then those giants will fall as the grasshoppers take their million steps all together and see Him bring about the results that only He's in control of. So we go to communion and it's, the ultimate out-of-our-control kind of thing. It's something that was done for us. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't buy it. You can't make it happen. We couldn't stop it from happening. It's just God's love. It's poured out. And so we get to enter into it one step by one step by one step. So as we start with some music here before you come up, I'd just like to invite us all to like admit our grasshopperness before the Lord. It's good. It's healthy. And also to put the giants before him, the unsaved loved ones that we're praying desperately for, the jobs that we think we might be losing, the, the relationship that we're afraid of losing, um, our kids that we're afraid of losing. Uh, this fear gets into us because it feels too big for us, and it is. But that's why we come back to the Father. That's why Jesus is so amazing. He gives us access. So take a moment to just... Look at your giants for what they are. They're grasshoppers before the Lord as well. Thank Him for all the giants that He's already knocked down in your path. And um, recommit. Recommit your life. I want to recommit my life to Him that I want to take today 
another of those million consecutive obedience steps because I know he'll honor that. That's what he wants. And we can trust him with how it turns out. So just take a moment for prayer. And then as we start the music, uh, feel free to come up and enjoy the Lord's Supper whenever you're ready.